A quick warning before we start. This episode will contain the names of both people and places that are entirely fictional and that I will pronounce incorrectly at least 90% of the time. Also, I'm afraid that I may have gone a little bit overboard with the audio clips this time around, but damn it, they work. All right, they just work. Enjoy the show. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Stephen or else presents Hither Came Conan, the podcast that's reading Conan comics one issue at a time, which of course it is. I mean, what kind of podcast would we be dealing with if it was reading Conan comics like six at a time? That just wouldn't make any sense. Okay, sure. Like six in a row, that would make sense. You read six comics in a row, then you talk about those six issues as a whole. But I'm talking about six issues at a time, like at the same time. That just sounds like a big jumbled mess. Yes. Yes, that's what I suppose it would. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And good Lord, we have a mammoth episode for you today as I reach out through this thing they call the Internet to take you on another trip back in time to the 1970s. And I'm doing so just so that we can talk about a half-naked dude with a sword. Seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Right. Stop that. Silly. You know what? It doesn't really matter because today... We're looking at Conan the Barbarian number 19 from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of October 1972, but it hit the stands in July. It sold for 20 cents, and it is entitled Hawks from the Sea. The story was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Dan Adkins, and the letters were by John Costanza. Into the boat! Previously in issue number 18... Conan and Fafnir, after escaping on a raft from the secret island of Balsagath, which crumbled away behind them under the relentless force of a volcanic eruption, the barbarian bros find passage on a passing Turanian ship, which they quickly learn is sailing to war. And so as issue 19 opens, Conan sits brooding on the deck of the ship, his mood not unlike that of the overcast sky above. Soon, the barbarian's gaze fixates on an ancient wooden carving coated in lacquer as it's brought out from within the bowels of the ship and then secured to the main mast. Curious, Conan notes the sudden stillness among the Turanian men, both soldiers and sailors alike, who now show an unexpected reverence toward the carving. Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Sorry. Balthaz, one of the soldiers, notices Conan's questioning expression and informs the barbarian that the carved image depicts Tarim, the mortal-turned-deity in whose name they sail to wage a holy war. Conan, almost annoyed by the idea, questions the worth of risking one's life for a piece of painted wood. The insult earns him a spear slash across the bridge of the nose from Balthaz. Blood soon mingles with Conan's growing rage. One more time, mate. 
I'll take you to fucking cleaner. Language! In an explosion of murderous fury, Conan seizes the spear and retaliates, battering Balthaz a bit before hurling him into the sea, where, in one of those coincidences that happen often in works of fiction, a hungry shark awaits. Before the shark can strike, however, an archer intervenes with a single arrow, sparing Balthaz from a watery demise. Impressed by Conan's audacity, Prince Yezdegerd intervenes. He soothes the savage Sumerian and shares the tale of Tarim, a mystic leader who guided his people from the sinking islands of ancient Lemuria to the eastern shores of the Vilayet, founding the Hyrcanian civilization. The living Tarim, a descendant of the original mystic, had resided in the Turanian temple of Agrapur until, when just a few weeks ago, he was abducted by the people of Makalet. Makalet? <laughs> sorry? Makalet. It's a completely synthetic chocolate substitute. King Yildiz, Yezdegerd's father, dispatched him to reclaim the living Tarim and to obliterate Makalet in retribution. Later, as night descends, Conan reflects upon the events of his life since leaving his homeland of Sumeria before he eventually drifts off to sleep. The following morning, Conan wakes to find that Yezdegerd's ship has reunited with the Turanian war fleet and that he has just enough time to arm himself as the assault on Makalit begins. Meanwhile, within the city, the king, a weak and fearful man, frets over the siege, blaming the situation on Karam Akkad, the scheming high priest who had devised the plan to abduct the Tarim. It's as the king throws out the idea of surrendering that his wife intervenes, convincing his royal majesty to go back to his room and leave the defense of the city to Karam. The king acquiesces, and Karam implements his secret mystical plans to save Makalit from the Turanian onslaught. And so, as Yezdegerd's army, led by Balthaz, makes ready to storm the palace, they pause as the doors open, and nine skeletal undead warriors shuffle out to greet them. Hello! 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 Balthaz orders his men to charge, assuming that the nine warriors are nothing more than men in masks. His men, however, having heard the order, make no move to advance. It's only as the nine spectral defenders begin to change that Balthaz realizes that sorcery may be at work here, for suddenly... The skeletal forms of the soldiers are covered over in flesh, and they now appear as human. They are, however, identical, as if the same man stands before them nine times. Nine times. Nine times. Nine times. They've grown in size as well, becoming like giants. Once again, Balthaz shouts out the command to charge, and this time his men spring into action. Unfortunately... Despite being severely outnumbered, the nine colossal defenders are unstoppable, and it's not long before they decimate the Turanian forces. Balthaz, hoping to turn things around, orders Fafnir and two others to scale the seawall and attempt to get into the palace from there. Fafnir and his two companions make it to the top of the wall when the great ginger warrior is shot by a flaming arrow. Conan, seeing his BFF fall, recalls another time when a previous bro, the Gunderman captain-turned-thief Bergen, was hanged way back in issue number 10, and his vow to never allow a bro to die again. And so, the Sumerian climbs the seawall to save his buddy. He finds Fafnir atop the wall, fallen and with a fiery arrow embedded in his arm, yet very much alive. 
As Conan kneels and removes the burning shaft from his BFF, he glances out at the battle below and observes a peculiar dynamic among the nine giant defenders. Then, seeing the dark-robed figure of Karamakad standing across the way, well within bowshot, Conan retrieves a fallen bow and single arrow from the wall, and taking aim, prepares to send the shaft into the wizard. However, be it an unfamiliarity with the use of the bow, or just a general uneasy feeling knowing that the very same type of weapon felled his red-bearded man-friend, Conan tosses them aside. Then, leaving Fafnir behind, the barbarian makes his way along the wall until he is behind the enemy lines before climbing down, descending into the fray. So focused is a Sumerian on investigating his discovery that he fails to see Fafnir rise to join him, stagger weakly for a few steps, and then fall from the seawall into the ocean below. Once on the ground, standing behind the nine identical giants, Conan is able to confirm that which he had suspected when he'd taken in the battle from above. The four warriors to the left of the one in the center are all left-handed, while the others favor their right. And while the barbarian isn't quite sure what it means, he's confident that smashing in the face of the warrior in the center with something dense and heavy like, I don't know, maybe a mace? Well, Conan figures that that ought to do the trick. So after dropping his sword, snatching up a falling mace, and fighting his way through the battle, Conan does just that. And as the colossal warrior falls, so do the other eight, dissolving into nothingness and turning the tide of the battle. And thus, as the issue comes to an end, the Turanian forces breach the eastern wall, marking a turning point in the assault on Makalit. Makalit. Conan then goes off with Balthaz to plot the siege of the city and to drink a lot of wine with his bestest bud in the whole wide world, Fafnir, whom, as we know and Conan doesn't, fell into the ocean and might possibly be dead. We shall see. Everybody out! All right, so as I mentioned earlier in the episode, this issue marks the return of Barry Windsor Smith on pencils and... While I'm sure there was a lot of excitement from the readers at the time, nobody seems to have been as excited as Roy Thomas. In his book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Roy says that when Barry returned, Roy could see almost instantly that Barry had gotten even better. And yeah, I I have to agree with Roy. The title of this story, Hawks from the Sea, Roy based on the title of the 1915 book, The Seahawk by Raphael Sabatini, which was made into a silent film of the same name in 1924. There's also the Errol Flynn movie, also called The Seahawk from 1940, which was meant to be a second film adaptation of the book, but for some reason or another, it wound up with a different story entirely. What does that have to do with the Conan issue? Nothing. (laughs) Not really. It's just, once I start researching as much as I hate to do the research, I sometimes latch on to bits of unrelated information that I just really can't help but regurgitate out to all y'all. I don't know. I looked it up on the Wikipedia. Anyway, Barry drew up the Hawks from the Sea title art on page one. And while he's not 100% confident, Roy feels like he remembers that Barry did the coloring on the issue as well, or at the very least, consulted on the coloring or even directed how the coloring was to be done. It's a shame that we don't know for sure, because it's the coloring of his own art, and that's one of the many things about Barry's art in the 80s that I love so much. It's just brilliant, but 
I guess they weren't crediting colorists at this point in comics for some reason. And I'm sure it's a reason that I will never understand. So whether or not Barry was involved in the coloring on this issue, I don't know that we'll ever know unless Barry comes out and tells us. And maybe he has somewhere. I just haven't found it. This was also the point in the Roy Thomas slash Barry Windsor Smith era of Conan comics when Barry had asked to be able to expand upon Roy's plots using his art. According to Roy, by this time when Barry came back, the plots may have been just what the two of them came up with together as they talked through each of the issues. In other words, the basic of the story, the two of them came up with conversationally and not as it was often done at the time, a page or two of typed up outline that hit all the main story beats and that was given to the artist to interpret and to use to then tell the story using their pencils while the writer would then come in afterwards and write up the narration and dialogue based on that finished penciled art. So to use an example of Barry being able to expand upon Roy's plots on page two, of this issue, Balthaz slashes his spear point across the bridge of Conan's nose, drawing blood. This moment was not part of Roy's plots, or if the plots were at this point, as Roy believes they may have been, just conversations the two of them had about the story before Barry would begin penciling, then really that moment wasn't part of that conversation. It's just something that Barry had decided to add in. But here's the thing, despite the fact that Barry asked to be given more free reign over the art, despite Roy, for lack of a better term, granting Barry's request, despite Barry being included in the conversation regarding the story, and despite Barry becoming what is in essence the co-plotter of the issue, he's not given that credit in the book. He's listed simply as the artist, which is a shame. I also want to point out here that the moment where Conan has his face bloodied by Balthaz, According to Roy, a year or two earlier, the Comics Code Authority would never have allowed that in the book. You know, that level of violence combined with the splash of blood. But now, or in mid-1972, the Comics Code Authority were becoming more lax. Or, to quote Roy, There were winds of change blowing across the industry by then, as we were poised to take full advantage of them. Now, I'm not the comic scholar I often wish I was, so I'm not able to point out any other moments around this time from other books where it appeared that things were starting to change. But I do know that Amazing Spider-Man, issues 96 through 98, published from February to March of 1971, were some of the very first Marvel comics to be published without the approval of the Comics Code and therefore did not carry that Comics Code shield on the cover. And that was, what, just a little over a year before this Conan issue came out? And really, I only know all this because I look it up, but I'm fairly certain that those issues of Amazing Spider-Man were what began this change, this shift from depending on having that shield on the books or the thinking that a comic without the shield on the cover wouldn't sell because, well, those issues of Spider-Man sold. But keep this in mind, those Spider-Man issues were published based on a request from the White House to do a story showing the dangers of drug use, or in other words, an anti-drug story. So that's what they wrote up. The Comics Code, however, as the story goes, wouldn't approve the first issue, number 96, because it depicted drug use. And while there wasn't an actual rule in the Comics Code that banned the depiction of drugs in comics, there was a rule that stated 
all elements or techniques not specifically mentioned herein, but which are contrary to the spirit and intent of the code and are considered violations of good taste or decency, shall be prohibited. Which is what the folks at the Comics Code Authority pointed to and used any time there was something in an issue that they didn't like, but wasn't specifically addressed within their list of rules. And they certainly used it here telling Marvel that they were not allowed to depict the use of drugs. Marvel, of course, fought back, pointing out that, yeah, there is drug use in the comic, but it's an anti-drug story that can't fully show the readers the dangers of doing drugs if it doesn't depict the character actually doing the drugs. The Comics Code, however, stuck to their guns, and Marvel, to their credit, gave the code the big fat middle finger and published the issue, as well as issues 97 and 98, without the code's approval and without that shield on the cover. So with the publishing of Amazing Spider-Man number 96, did that moment start a movement that led to this issue of Conan a year later being allowed to depict a bit of bloody violence that just the year before they never would have gotten away with? Maybe. I mean, this issue and all the Conan issues before it were published with the approval of the Comics Code Authority. The shield is right there on the upper right-hand side of the cover. So sure. Maybe some of the people at the Comics Code were beginning to be a bit less strict, and maybe they were going less and less to that broad definition rule I read out earlier to reject anything that they didn't like that wasn't covered under a specific rule. But the industry still had a ways to go before publishers like Marvel and DC stopped using the Comics Code Authority altogether. But still, it's good to see a bit of bloody violence in Conan now and again. Now, a couple of episodes back, when we talked about issue number 17, The Gods of Balsagath, the first issue of Conan the Barbarian that published after Barry had left the book, I believe we talked about the fact that Barry's art had reached a point that it was becoming so detailed that it made inking the book more than a little time-consuming. Well, in this issue, if you were reading along and you got about halfway through the book and you thought to yourself, hmm... The art seems to have changed up a bit here. It's still Barry, but there's something different about it. Worry not, dear listener, because you would be right. Barry, still as detailed as ever, is just not an easy artist to ink, especially on a book that comes out monthly. And so, as it became clear that Dan Atkins, the inker on the issue, wasn't going to complete the book on time, the decision was made to publish the last 11 or so pages of the issue, which hadn't at that point been inked as they were, meaning no inks. Just color the pencils and get it published, which, while I'm fairly certain wasn't the first time pages were published without inks, I'm pretty comfortable saying that I doubt it was done all that often. So doing it here in this issue of Conan was, as Roy puts it, a daring experiment. And to be honest, I hadn't even noticed. Not until Roy pointed it out, in Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian. And, of course, now that he has, I can't not notice it. It's not bad. It's just not the same as the pages that were inked. Of course, the big question then becomes, which half of the book do you think looks the best? The inked front half or the uninked back half? For me, I have to go with the back half of the book. I mean, do I think that those pages would look better inked? I do. I, I really do. I happen to be a big fan of inked pencils in comics, but 
I would rather they were inked by Barry or someone who could bring out Barry's style much better than most of the inkers he's had on this book so far. So yes, I would prefer to see those pages inked, but given the choice between seeing them inked by anyone other than Barry or seeing them not inked at all, I'd have to go with not inked at all. And frankly, I would have preferred that they had come up with this daring experiment from the outset so the entire issue could have been done that way. Which, again, begs another question, are the rest of the Barry issues inked, or are they not? I honestly have no answer to that, folks. I've not read ahead. Not that I object to that. I do read ahead on the book now and again. But usually I do it for four issues at a time, and considering that this issue was the fourth issue in the four issues I read way back before I recorded the episode for issue 16, I have read no further than this issue which again is issue 19 for those taking score at home. Of course, once I'm done recording this episode, I'll get out there and I'll read issues 20 through 23. So I will know the answer to the inking question at that point. But for now, all right. So yeah, I kind of lied. I did look ahead at the credits to issues 20 to 24 over at Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. Issues 20 through 24 are the final Barry Conan issues. And it looks like all of them, except issue 24, are inked by others. Heck, it looks like issues 21 and 23 have multiple inkers. So I guess Marvel must have deemed the daring experiment a failure. Now, while there isn't an inker listed in the credits on Mike's Amazing World of Comics for issue number 24, it does credit Barry as the artist slash colorist. So yeah, I don't know if that means there were no inks at all or if Barry inked himself. Regardless, I'm looking forward to getting to that, the final Barry issue, because I have a feeling that it's going to look pretty damn incredible. By the way, since I'm looking ahead and teasing stuff that's coming up, issue 25 is the first issue of the John Buscema run on Conan, which I've said before, when it comes to the Conan comics, I came in reading during the John Buscema era. So His Conan is my Conan, but it does appear as if Barry is credited as a plotter on the issue. And I don't know about you, but I am all kinds of pumped to continue on with more and more and more and more Conan. And with that said, I don't have anything else to say about this issue, which means that it's time to talk about my favorite bits of the issue in a segment that has quickly become the most talked about and the most popular segment of the show, Stephen's Stephen's Favorite favorite Bits. bits. Okay, so, yeah, I gotta come clean here. What I said about Stephen's Favorite Bits being the most talked about and the most popular segment on the show, that was a big, fat lie. Not that people hate it or are even talking about it. I, I just tried to channel my inner Stan and embellish things a little. Right. Now, don't do it again. I will never do so again. Starting with the cover, while I'm not a big fan of the coloring, you know, you got these pinks and purples in the sky that are mixing with the, I don't know, I guess you'd call it orange on those skeletal warriors. And then you add the big blue frame around the image. Yeah, it it just looks bland to me. It doesn't look dynamic in any way. Conan, however, swinging a mace as he battles those skeletal warriors That looks dope as hell and a not too inaccurate depiction of what we will get inside the issue itself. 
page one, which is the title page and is also a splash page, is a great freaking page. It's not really depicting anything exciting. It's just Conan. He's in the foreground on the left-hand side of the page with Balthaz, who won't be named for a couple of pages. He's standing with his back to us, also in the foreground, but over on the right side. Then in the background, we see some men lashing that blue wooden carving of the living Tareem to the mast. And again, there really isn't anything exciting going on. No blood. No one's head is being lopped off. There's just no sword play whatsoever. But the perspective, the way the length of the ship rolls back from our eyes, showing a sense of depth down the center of the page, I think that looks pretty damn good. And that's why it made one of my favorite bits. On page three, after Balthaz bloodies Conan's nose, there are two panels that show Conan lifting Balthaz into the air and then bringing the man down onto Conan's knee. It's like something out of a pro wrestling match, and it looks painful as hell. I'm sure it would hurt plenty if Conan just walked up to you and kneed you in the gut, but to have him lift you from the ground into the air and then bring you rapidly down to slam into his knee with your gut? I mean, <laughs> I bet Balthaz was pooping blood the next day. That's, that's all I'm going to say. There's a panel on page six of Fafnir, just him, his face. And that has to be my single favorite panel of the entire issue. First, it is so Barry Windsor Smith. I mean, I would put that panel up against anything in X-Men number 205 any day of the week. But it also shows that Dan Adkins can ink Barry in a way that allows Barry's style to shine. Plus, of course, Fafnir is a fellow ginger, and that makes him one of my favorite characters. Gee, I hope nothing happens to him, he says quietly to himself on his first read of the issue. Moving on to page seven, while I can appreciate what Barry is trying to do here, and while I love the way the page has been laid out, what with the top row of panels showing Conan heading to his bunk on the deck of the ship, the second row being just the one panel of Conan asleep, and then the third row of panels depicting the morning as it creeps in, I'm just not sure why we needed so many panels there in that top row just to show Conan walking away from us, the reader. Other than, I don't know, they needed room to fit in all the text, but if what Roy says is true, all the art was put together before he even started the narration bits and whatnot. So yeah, it just looks weird. So while I picked this as one of my favorite bits, it's mostly for what I think Barry was trying to do and less with how he did it, if that makes any sense at all. And I hope it does, because it's the same reason I picked my next bit, which happens to be the next page, page eight. The line work in that final panel is amazing. The fleet, all the men, all the detail, it's great. It is a wonderful looking panel. The colors that they put to that page in that panel, not so much. Purple sails, green water, pink sky, yellow boats, and solid orange people. But if Roy is correct in his belief that Barry was involved in some or all of the coloring in the issue, either by doing the colors himself or directing the colorist on what to do, then it is nice to see Barry experimenting in this way, especially knowing that it will take him to where he is in 1986 with, as I've mentioned already, X-Men number 205. And that happens to be my most favorite single comic book issue ever. 
Next, I like the bit where we meet the king of Mocklet. I love Mocklet. It's obvious by his actions that he is a weak and ineffectual king. And then when we first see his face, Barry has given the man a very weak face as well, which I just love. And the man's wife, I mean, I guess she'd be the queen, though I don't believe they ever refer to her as such. Well, it's obvious that the real power in Makhalet is the high priest, Karamakad. And not only does the queen know this, she seems to support it as well. And that becomes most clear in her response to the king as he's freaking out over the initial pushback from his soldiers to the invading Terranians. See, as the ships arrive at the port there in Makhalet, as they pull into the docks and before the Terranians can disembark, soldiers in Makhalet rain arrows of fire down upon the ships and the soldiers lining their decks. Well, this does appear to take out many of the Terranian men, but I guess the king, I guess he just expected to win at that point, that the rain of arrows would either kill all of the Terranian soldiers or they would do so much damage that the soldiers would flee. The Terranians don't all die, however, and they certainly don't flee. And despite the arrows falling atop them, they managed to disembark and get assembled before the city. And that has the king all kinds of freaking out. He's in the palace. He's looking out at the docks from his giant window. And he doesn't quite understand why the battle hasn't ended as he expected it would. As Karamakad told him it would. And it's as he's in mid freakout chastising his high priest because he swore that the flaming arrows would deter the invaders that he suddenly becomes a bit faint. He places a hand upon his brow, and like a genteel woman of the South, faced with an improper breach of etiquette, he catches the vapors. It's then, when he tells everyone that his mind is spinning and that he needs rest, that his wife suggests that a rest would do him good, and even throws out the idea that he might want to take one of his potions for sleep, and that Karamakad can handle the invasion, meaning that, yeah, she knows what side the bread is buttered on. She knows. Her husband is useless. She knows that Karam is the man, and she has no issue helping the high priest manipulate the king to ensure that things get done. That's a bit of storytelling that I really enjoyed in this issue. It wasn't really necessary, but it was included, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I have to wonder, was that the plan all along? Or when Barry turned in the pencils to Roy, and he looked at that page and started setting out to throw in some dialogue and some some narration that he saw how weak the king's face looked and just decided, all right, this is what we're going to do here. Either way, I, I like it. It's a, it's a great bit of storytelling. And finally, that single panel near the end where Conan, using a mace, smashes in the face of the central of the nine identical dead warriors, that is the last of my favorite bits. Not only am I able to hear the sound of that impact in my head, because remember, we talked about this before, I think only in one episode, but Roy had pointed out that they were not using lettered sound effects. You know, a panel like that might accompany a big bakaroom or something like that, you know, in the background, but they had decided not to do that, which doesn't really matter because again, looking at that panel, I can hear the sound of the impact in my head and I can almost feel it. I mean, Barry does this great freaking job of showing us just how brutal that hit is without needing to see the blood and brains and skull and all that flying out all over the stuff that, 
you know, the kind of things that the Comics Code Authority would definitely not approve of, despite the winds of change blowing across the industry. And those, dear listener, were my favorite bits. However, before we move on, I do want to talk about Fafnir. I mean, the dude fell off the seawall into the ocean, but I don't know. I don't think he's dead. I don't want to think he's dead. And frankly, this is comics. If there's no body, then nobody's dead. So until I see a body, I'm going to assume that he's out there somewhere alive. And maybe for all I know, he shows right back up in the very next issue. But until we learn the fate of Dear Fafner, how about we do a little bit of listener's feedback? So I've got one email to share, and it comes all the way from Sweden, and it actually opens up with the words greeting from Sweden, but in Swedish. So I'm going to do my best, but you will have to forgive me if I butcher it. I'm not versed in Swedish, and I am depending on the internet for the pronunciation. But here it goes. Halsnagar från Sweden. Thanks for the Conan podcast. I love when people axe first and shoot later just like Conan. My question for you is, what would you suggest to a person who has never read a comic book, but wants to see Conan non-PC or politically correct? Which publisher do you think shows Conan in his genuine light? I hear you saying that the Marvel stuff had censorship and so on, so no blood or decapitation, etc. But when did the publishers unleash Conan's full gory glory? If I am going to buy a comic, I would prefer Conan Uncensored. So far, it sounds like Titan didn't give a Gunderman, but what's your take? I would also love to weigh in on the racism, sexism, and prejudice conversation, but maybe it's a little drawn out. Live your life without regret. Love, Bjorn. All right, so first, I don't know that I'd call what the Marvel books did with Conan back in the 70s as being politically correct. The Marvel books at the time had to contend with the Comics Code Authority, which we've talked about a few times. And the Comics Code Authority, which was formed with good intentions, you know, to create books that were safe for children. Of course, they went a little overboard and drew a lot of lines that they refused to let anyone cross, regardless of reason, just like what I talked about earlier in the episode. And I often wonder what this Marvel Conan run from the 70s would be like were it not for the comics code. And I feel like it would be more true to the original stories when it came to the level of violence and all that. But to answer your question, which comics tell Conan stories that are more, well, the true Conan, when Dark Horse took over the property in 2004, I feel like they did a really good job of not holding back. And though I've not read them all, they did tell some pretty damn good stories. Uh, when Marvel got Conan back in 2019, again, I didn't read them all, but what I read, I really did enjoy. But if you are looking for a truly Conan uncensored line of comics, then I think you'll like the Sumerian line of books from Ablaze Comics, which in the solicitations for the first volume, they claim, For the first time, Robert E. Howard's Conan is brought to life uncensored. Discover the true Conan, unrestrained violent, and sexual. Which, once again, I've not read them all, but those I have read 
have been a bit hit or miss. If you go looking for them, make sure you you do get the Ablaze titles, however. They have different artists, different writers. They are direct adaptations, basically, of the Robert E. Howard stories. They apparently did a couple of other books that told the story of Belit, and I, I don't remember who the other one was. I've not read those, but I've heard really bad things about them. But yeah, if you want more Robert E. Howard-like stories, then the, the Sumerian line is what you're looking for. But here's the thing. After reading through all of Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, I don't know that I want any more adaptations, especially direct, uncensored adaptations because of, well, as you mentioned in your email, the racism, the sexism, and all that. Conan as a character, I feel, has grown beyond all of that. And I think modern writers do a great job of giving us a Conan who doesn't take any shit but isn't just a screaming racist and, and, and all that other stuff. I, for one, am quite pleased with the Titan run so far, and I would recommend it to any Conan fan. See, for me, and this is just one guy's opinion, and as they say, opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. But I like Conan best when he's written as a guy who he's always on the razor's edge of living in a civilized society, following the rules and all that, but will at any moment lash out and seriously mess up anybody dumb enough to screw with the man. I like a Conan who is violent, who isn't afraid to do what needs to be done and will, as you said, axe first and shoot later. But I also like it when he's written to also have a certain kind of code to go along with that level of brutal barbarism. I mean, he's not just some crazy killing machine, right? He's not this unthinkable murderer who just goes out and kills. He's not going to slaughter a school full of children, for example, just to get what he wants. Unless, of course, that it's a school of evil devil children that feast on the hearts of others. Those, I think Conan would be okay with taking an ax to all of them, and I would be right there beside him, egging him on. But when I think back to Robert E. Howard's Conan, I often think back to the first two stories that were published, The Phoenix on the Sword and The Scarlet Citadel. This was an older Conan, maybe in his mid-40s, early 50s, possibly even in his 60s, who in his life had traveled far and wide, who had seen much, and was now a king. And the way Howard writes this version of Conan, he's a good king. He's a just king. He's a king who loves and looks out for his people. He's not the kind of king that would chop down a peasant in the street for daring to look upon his face, or one who might accidentally get a bit of dirt on the royal robes. No, Conan is the kind of king that were he to see a nobleman treating a peasant in such a fashion, Conan wouldn't hesitate to remove the noble from his head. That's the Conan I like. And yeah, he did come from barbarism, but the Conan that Howard wrote, especially those first two stories, is a highly intelligent man. He speaks different languages, he creates maps, and he can lead armies and create intricate battle plans involving thousands of troops. He rose from that barbarism, fought his way out, and yeah, it was a bloody life getting from the point when he left Sumeria at the age of, I don't know, 14 or 18, depending on what you've read, and then finally getting to that point in his life, ruling the kingdom of Aquilonia. He swam through blood and filth to get to that point, and he learned much along the way, especially about the so-called civilized places of the world. There's actually a pretty good run of six comics, a title called King Conan that Marvel published from December of 2021 to July of 2022, in which King Conan 
is off on his last adventure. But before he can leave his kingdom to his son, he worries that his son, having been raised a prince and not in blood and struggle as Conan was, he worries that because his son hadn't fought for every inch of everything he'd ever gained in his life, that his son would be too soft to truly run the kingdom and that his generals and his advisors would take advantage of the boy and they would end up using him as a puppet. And so Conan tries to do something about it before he leaves. And to be honest, I was really disappointed by the story at first. I felt that they may have made Conan into a total dick based on how he was treating his son. But by the end of it, well, I'm not going to go as far as to say it was a perfect Conan story, but it was a damn good tale. And I'm sure it's one that I will go back to again and again. But going back to Howard's Conan from those first two stories where Conan has become a king, I often cite a particular passage from the Scarlet Citadel that, for me, perfectly represents the sort of character that I feel Conan should be. This is four paragraphs from chapter two. Conan has been captured by his enemies and taken to Korshamish, the capital of Koth. And actually here, let me read to you the opening paragraph of chapter two first, because I think it sets this all up rather nicely. In the citadel, in a chamber with a domed ceiling of carven jet and the fretted arches of doorways glimmering with strange dark jewels, a strange conclave came to pass. Conan of Aquilonia, blood from unbandaged wounds caking his huge limbs, faced his captors. On either side of him stood a dozen black giants, grasping their long-shafted axes. In front of him stood Sotha, and on divans lounged Strabonus and Amorus in their silks and gold, gleaming with jewels, naked slave boys beside them pouring wine into cups carved of a single sapphire. In strong contrast stood Conan, grim, blood-stained, naked but for the loincloth, shackles on his mighty limbs, his blue eyes blazing between the tangled mane which fell over his low, broad forehead. He dominated the scene, turning to tinsel the pomp of the conquerors by sheer vitality of his elemental personality, and the kings in their pride and splendor were aware of it, each in his secret heart, and were not at ease. Only Sotha was not disturbed. All right, so just a bit more information for context. As I said, Conan is a prisoner. He's in Koth. He's in the city of Korshamish, standing before his captors in the Scarlet Citadel, which is where Sothalanti resides. Sothalanti is a Kothian wizard, and he is the true ruler of Koth. With Sotha are the other collaborators, Strabonus, king of Koth, and Amaris, the king of Ophir. The three have banded together to both remove Conan from the throne of Aquilonia and have Conan sign documents placing Prince Apello of Pelia on the throne to act as a puppet for the three conspirators. That opening paragraph really does set the mood here, describing all of the finery of the surroundings and the clothes the three collaborators are wearing, and in contrast, how Conan, filthy and naked but for a loincloth, covered in dried blood and in chains, makes all of the sparkly, expensive trappings feel dull and lifeless just from his very presence, his air of dominance, of the strength that flows out of Conan despite his condition. And it's just one of the things about the man, the character that I love. So to the bit that I was going to read, 
Amaris has just told Conan that, in essence, if Conan does as he is told, if he leaves and hands over his kingdom, that they are prepared to offer him compensation, to which Conan responds, Compensation? It was a gust of deep laughter from Conan's mighty chest. The price of infamy and treachery. I am a barbarian, so I shall sell my kingdom and its people for life and your filthy gold? Ha! How did you come to your crown, you and that black-faced pig beside you? Your fathers did the fighting and the suffering and handed their crowns to you on golden platters. What you inherited without lifting a finger, except to poison a few brothers, I fought for. You sit on satin and guzzle wine the people sweat for and talk of divine rights of sovereignty. Bah! I climbed out of the abyss of naked barbarism to the throne, and in that climb I spilt my blood as freely as I spilt that of others. If either of us have the right to rule men by crom, it is I. How have you proved yourselves my superiors? I found Aquilonia in the grip of a pig like you, one who traced his genealogy for a thousand years. The land was torn with the wars of the barons, and the people cried out under oppression and taxation. Today, no Aquilonian noble dares maltreat the humblest of my subjects, and the taxes of my people are lighter than anywhere else in the world. What of you? Your brother Amalrus holds the eastern half of your kingdom and defies you. And you, Strabonus, your soldiers are even now besieging castles of a dozen or more rebellious barons. The people of both your kingdoms are crushed into the earth by tyrannous taxes and levies. And you would loot mine? Ha! Free my hands and I'll varnish this floor with your brains. And that is the Conan that I like. Now, sure, one could argue that Conan had to go a long way to get to that point. He had to face many challenges, pass many trials. And as a youth, he was a different person who had not yet learned the lessons he would learn to become the great king he is in stories like The Phoenix on the Sword and The Scarlet Citadel. And yeah, that's true. But to that, I would say that the foundation was always there. Meaning, sure, Conan is going to make mistakes and missteps along the journey from the youth that left Samaria in search of adventure to the man who rules Aquilonia. But I prefer the stories that show Conan making those mistakes, learning the lesson that comes from those mistakes, and from that, adding another stone to that foundation. But here's the thing. Robert E. Howard wasn't thinking about any of that when he was writing all these Conan stories. He was trying to make money, and he knew he could do so by doing what he loved, which was writing. But he was very calculating about it. Not, not that I blame him, not in any way. But he knew what magazines wanted, what stories sold, and he wrote to that market. He wasn't crafting the epic story of Conan one short story at a time, which is why Conan stories, as they were written and published, were all out of order in regard to the timeline of his life. But yeah, I seem to have strayed quite a bit from giving you, Bjorn, and you, dear listener, a brief, succinct answer to the various questions in the emails, which, yeah, I tend to do that now and again. But with that knowledge, I will just touch on the final point of the email in regard to you, Bjorn, stating that you would love to weigh in on the racism, sexism, and prejudice conversation, but maybe it's a little drawn out. To that, I say it's never drawn out. I think these things need to be talked about, and I think they need to be talked about often. If you've got something to say, something to add to the conversation, I would love to hear it. 
even if you have nothing new to add, but just want to repeat what's already been said, I would love to hear that as well. So let me know. And yeah, thanks for the email. I don't know that I've ever spent this much time responding to a single email, but you know what they say, life is like a box of chocolates and all that stuff. As for the rest of you, dear listeners, if you have feedback or if you want to add to the conversation that started based on this week's email, the email is in the show notes, Stephen or else at gmail.com. We also have a voice line. You can call to leave a voicemail or text. And of course, there's the Twitter account. It's all in the show notes, folks. Choose whichever one you feel most comfortable using. Also, just so everyone is aware, when it comes to submitting feedback, the schedule I'm trying to maintain at this point is to spend the weekend putting my notes together and then recording on Monday morning before work. See, I want to be able to release these episodes on Wednesdays for members of the Super Secret Stephen Society before it goes up on the main feed on Friday. And in order to allow myself time to do that, I have to record the episode Monday morning before work. So knowing that any feedback submitted between Monday and let's say Sunday night, those will show up on the episode the following Friday. I hope that makes sense. But again, thank you, Bjorn, for the feedback. That's the only bit of feedback we have this week, which would typically bring us to the end of our show. But before we go, however, I do have one more bit of business. On Monday morning, this morning, as I'm recording this, November 27th, I had a couple of more bits to add to the episode, and I did what I always do when I'm researching and adding information to the show. I went out to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com to gather some publishing dates and creator information and whatnot. And when I did so, I was met with some sad news. Mike, who created the site, who loaded the site with decades of information and who has continued to maintain the site, has passed away. According to the site, as told by the character of Neil Gaiman's death, it was my recent pleasure to help Mike on his way. No, this isn't a fit of delirium. It's real. But don't despair. Everything will be peachy keen. His website will not meet with destruction. It was Mike's desire that his site remain endless. He made arrangements regarding the destiny of the site. Sleep well, for his dream will continue for a long time to come. Until we meet again. This, for me, was unexpected and, to be honest, really quite sad. I mean... I didn't know Mike, not at all. I'd never met him that I know of. I've never talked to him that I know of. And I have no idea what his last name was. And I don't know how he passed. I only know that he must have spent a great long time. I mean, a sizable chunk of his life building and maintaining his site, uh, a place that I have literally visited at least once a day, every day for the past two to three years when it was first pointed out to me. See, I used to be one of those podcasters that when I was talking about a book, I would give the publishing date as the month and year that appeared on the cover, knowing deep down that that information was wrong. I mean, I'm sure you all know this, but the month that's printed on the cover of the comic, more specifically comics that were published up until the late 90s, early 2000s, that month and year does not represent the month that the comic was published. Typically, the comic was published two months before the month on the cover. The month that is printed there on the cover was used, you know, back when they were sold on newsstands, it was used to tell the proprietor when to remove the book from the stands. 
those books at the time were returnable, meaning that if the book was still on the stand come the month that was printed on the cover, the proprietor of said newsstand would remove the book from the stand, rip off the cover, and send the cover back to the distributor, and they would receive a percentage back on what they paid for the issue. Now, as always, there are exceptions to the rule, but in general, that's how it all worked. In other words, it's not a good idea to take that month at face value and take, for example, Superman number 75, which showed a cover date of January 1993, and tell your listeners or readers that Superman number 75, the issue which Superman dies fighting Doomsday, was published in January of 1993, or to announce to your listeners or your readers in your most confident voice that January 2024 will be the 31st anniversary of the death of Superman. Because in fact, the issue was published on November 17th, 1992, which made November 2023 the 31st anniversary. How do I know that? Mike's Amazing World of Comics. That's how I know. Mike's Amazing World of Comics has become an invaluable resource to me as a podcaster and as a reader. Not only do I use that site to get publishing dates, I use it for all the basic issue information that you get at the top of each show. Today's show, for example, when I said, This issue sports a cover date of October 1972, but it hit the stands in July. It sold for 20 cents, and it is entitled Hawks from the Sea. The story was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Dan Atkins, and the letters were by John Costanza. I got that from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, but I also use Mike's to plan out the reading order for various podcasts. Let's take Superman or else, for example. I've recently finished releasing the first six episodes talking about the six issues of John Burns, the Man of Steel miniseries from 1986. And while I am currently on a break, when I get back into it, I'll be talking about the three Superman books that were being published directly after the Man of Steel, Superman Action Comics and The Adventures of Superman. Well, here's the thing. I'm reading those issues as part of a collection called Superman, The Man of Steel, Volume 1. This collection contains The Man of Steel issues 1 through 6, as well as Superman issues 1 through 4, The Adventures of Superman number 424 to 428, and Action Comics number 584 to 587. As I'm reading the collection, following The Man of Steel number 6, the next four issues appear in the following order. Superman number 1, Action Comics number 584, Superman number two, and then the adventures of Superman number 424. But once again, here's the thing. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, while all four issues were published in 1986, Superman number one was published on October 9th. Action Comics number 584 was published on October 23rd. Superman number two was published on November 13th. And the adventures of Superman number 424 was published on October 16th. Meaning for some reason or another, the collection has these issues printed out of order. Now, I don't know why. Maybe the folks at DC feel that as far as the larger story goes, the order as printed in the collection is the way to read those issues. For me, however, I prefer to read them and then podcast about them in the order in which they were published. And thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, I can do that. Finally, another big reason I use Mike's website is when, as a reader, there are times I want to sit down and read using the DC app, for example. Everything DC released between January of 1985 and January of 1986. Well, first, have you tried to pull a list of issues like that on the DC app? Good luck. Plus, 
Places like the DC app and the Marvel app, they tend to use the month and the year on the cover of their books as the publication date for the issues that are on the app, meaning that I can't trust them to give me the reading list I truly need. And thinking back like that, actually listing out the various reasons I use Mike's site, the truly sad thing about all this just has suddenly dawned on me. I will never get the chance to tell Mike thank you for what he created. I can only hope that someone who knew him, someone who was close to him, that maybe they're listening and they will know what Mike has meant to me. So thank you, Mike. Rest in peace. Here is 30 seconds of silence just for you. And that's it, folks. That's all I got this week. I I can't imagine how long this episode is going to be by the time I'm finished editing it all down. But the recording is currently at one hour, 23 minutes and three seconds. So yeah, this is going to be a long one. Regardless, join me back here next time as we take a look at Conan the Barbarian number 20, The Black Hound of Vengeance from August of 1972. Until then, keep your swords close by. Never stop treading them jeweled thrones. And most importantly, be nice to each other. Bye. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time... He became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough talk! What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.